0: WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Wood pellets look a bit like manufactured hamster food, just a bit larger. They're cylindrical pieces of compressed wood that countries in Europe and Asia are buying to fuel their power grids in place of coal. And much of the metric tons of pellets going overseas are former North Carolina forest lands. Why the big appetite for wood pellets abroad? Partly because the European Union's climate and energy program still deems wood pellets carbon-neutral, renewable energy sources. Public skepticism around these claims, though, is rising. And Viva, the largest wood pellet manufacturer in the world, boasts four plants in North Carolina, along with a distribution facility at the Wilmington Port when concerns first arose among North Carolina environmentalists about the state's pine and hardwood forests going into wood chippers for shipment overseas, and Viva Company officials assured critics wood pellets are mostly made of waste, treetops, limbs, even sawdust. According to reporting from environmental journalist Justin Catanoso, also a professor of journalism at Wake Forest University, that claim is false. After covering climate change related issues for more than a decade, Catanoso has been chipping away at other Inviva company assertions, including the notion that Enviva only buys wood from areas that will be replanted. In a recent article for Manga Bay, a conservation news organization, Catanoso seeks to explain why, quote, a billion-dollar company with long-term contracts around the world and where demand for pellets is at a record high, had lost more than $250 million this year and exhausted a $570 million line of credit. It's an economic and an environmental issue for the state of North Carolina, particularly in the East. So we're going to hear today from Justin Cadenoso about what he's learning. We'll also explore his reporting process. As a teacher of journalism, how does he think about the line between environmental advocacy and writing for news? When there's so much at stake, how does he vet anonymous sources? Let's find out. He joins us now from member station WFDD in Winston-Salem. Justin Catanosa, welcome to Coastline.
1: Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Good to have you with us. So help us understand the scale here. Approximately how many trees per year does North Carolina send overseas in the form of wood pellets?
1: Well, I can't give you the number of trees, but I can give you the amount. For the last several years, so when Viva opened its first plant in North Carolina in 2011, and it added three plants since then. All four of those plants have gotten state approval to expand. They built their depot in Wilmington, as you said, and they produce in excess of two and a half million metric tons of wood pellets from North Carolina forests annually. And they get shipped overseas to Europe, to the United Kingdom, and also to Asia. They also have a plan to double that output within the next four years.
0: Two and a half million metric tons. Now, I know this is a probably a difficult question, but is there? Can you help us understand what that looks like? What that even means?
1: Um, it's a lot of acres, and uh, y- you know, if if you've ever been near an Inviva plant, whether in the or Sampson County, uh, or or uh, Northampton, even Southampton, Virginia. The plants, the, tr- the, the, the trucks that bring what they call fiber, they're either trees or they're chipped trees, to viva plants are running pretty much 24-7, six days a week. And these are either, if it's chipped um, uh, trees that they're bringing, they're, they're bringing 40 tons at a time, they're bringing 50 to 60 trees a day, and they're all coming largely from native forests within a 50-mile radius of each of those viva plants. So it's, you know, it's scores and scores of acres that are coming down a month within those uh, uh, catchment areas for, for um supply.
0: And what does this, is it fair to call it deforestation? What, what does that look like? Is it every single tree? Is it just a certain size of tree? What does it look like after the loggers have been in there?
1: What it looks like is devastation. I mean, there isn't any other way around that. Um, when you show up on a site that has been cleared, uh, you know, by a logging company, there's nothing left. Uh, and I have showed up on those scenes, uh, those those sites to see them, not only North Carolina, but in other parts of the country, and even in in Canada, where I, where I've re- reported on issues like this. Essentially, you know, it takes about three guys uh, with the right equipment to clear 50 acres of land completely within one week. Now, I I need to really emphasize here that Inviva isn't taking all of this wood. We are, North Carolina, have been for a very long time not only a wood producing state, we grow trees for the purpose of cutting them down to be used for other things. You know, we're a wood manufacturing state. I live in Greensboro, and this is sort of the, the center of the furniture industry. Um, we also have paper mills in this state, and we also, believe it or not, we, we make diapers in this state, and wood fluff goes into diapers. Enviva comes onto the scene in 2011, and it starts putting extra demand on forests for the wood that it needs and it wants to produce these wood pellets to fulfill contracts overseas. Again, as you mentioned, uh, to be burned as an energy source in place of coal.
0: Now, the the land that the loggers are deforesting, who generally owns that land is the, are these public lands, private lands? Where, how are the loggers getting in there?
1: It's almost exclusively private land, and it's the reason why pellet makers like Inviva, and they're not the only pellet maker in the southeastern United States. There are a handful of others, but they're the largest. They have 10 total plants between North Carolina and the deep south. They are located in the, in the southeast because 90% of wooded land in the southeast is in private hands. And, uh, you know, logging is a big industry here. And so loggers are the middleman. Enviva doesn't own a single parcel of land. It doesn't own a single tree. It contracts with loggers for a certain tonnage of wood fiber, whether it is whole trees or whether it is chip trees, to be delivered on a regular basis. So these loggers are literally knocking on doors. And uh, they are sort of counting up how much wood uh, a landowner is willing to give up, is willing to sell, and then they're paying them on the spot. And Rachel, here's the thing. You know, this is a largely unregulated process if you are not going to do anything with that land. So if you aren't planning to develop it in any way, if you're not putting roads in, if you're not building a housing development or a commercial development or an industrial development, there are no environmental laws uh, that say you can't completely deforest your land, cut down every tree, even if it's a sort of a prized ecosystem, even if it is providing... Sort of uh, climate mitigation against flooding or storm surges, you, you know, there on the East Coast. You can cut your trees down and sell them if it is private land, and that is the same in Virginia as it is in Alabama and Mississippi and all states in between.
0: Right. Now, one of the criticisms from environmental groups about this is that North Carolina uh, forests uh, are carbon sinks. For those who who aren't in the environmental advocacy business? What can you explain? What a carbon sink is?
1: Yeah, this is basic climate science. Yeah, uh, you know, trees are are absolutely the best tool, the best mechanism we have for fighting climate change. Trees of all kinds um, here in the southeast, uh, in, in the Amazon, uh, in forests around the world, in the boreal forests of Canada they are all pulling carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And this carbon dioxide is largely what we have as industrialized nations put up into the atmosphere in, in, to produce energy. So now these trees are pulling this carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as food and they absorb it through their leaves, it gets pulled down through their limbs, down into their trunks, through their roots and into the ground. There is as much carbon that a tree stores below ground as it does above ground. This is what a carbon sink is. Every time we lose a tree, we lose that ability for that tree to fight climate change and to fight rising temperatures that we are seeing on a regular basis day by day around the world.
0: Now, you mentioned because this is private land in the state of North Carolina and also Virginia, there's nothing regulators can do or say about this about this use of the land and taking out the trees. Are you suggesting that in other places there are policies about private land with forests on them? What
1: uh, what I am suggesting is that a lot of the wooded land in other states, in the northeast and particularly in the west, is more um, public lands, whether mm-hmm. it's owned by the state or whether it's owned by the federal government. So there just isn't as much private land available. Um, in the southeast, they just have a whole lot more opportunity um, to procure wood from private owners where, uh, where there's less regulation and less obstacles to getting that wood. And there's something I, I really need to emphasize in this for, for our listeners. And, and I mentioned this earlier, but I want to be really clear. Enviva is not taking all of this wood they are taking anywhere from 10 to 20 to 50% of the wood that comes off for example a 50 acre site that is getting deforested the rest of the wood the highest quality wood the biggest you know the widest the straightest wood the hardwood that is being sort of cut into long trunks and it's being sent places where where the loggers can get the highest value for that wood and so that's going to timber mills you know we we aren't producing as much paper in this state as we used to, we aren't producing as much low-quality wood products as we used to, um, but there's still a demand for high-quality wood for building and for furniture. And so the loggers are separating this out, and, you know, the high-quality stuff goes to timber mills, and Inviva takes the rest.
0: Right. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with Mongabay environmental reporter Justin Catanoso, who also teaches journalism at Wake Forest University. Still ahead, how he vets anonymous sources. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. You are listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. North Carolina forests are an important source for wood pellets, for viva a company that may be on the verge of collapse but still boasts four processing plants in the state and one port facility in Wilmington. Justin Cadenoso, a reporter for the international environmental science news organization Manga Bay, also teaches journalism at Wake Forest University. He covers the industry and recently unearthed some of the reasons behind the company's financial crisis, which Justin Cadenoso will get to in a second. But first I want to ask about... The economic question here, as you've mentioned, North Carolina has been a timber-producing state and a wood-product-producing state for years, so this is just one part of that sector. Do Does this work, does this industry help some of these more economically depressed rural areas? I mean, doesn't this produce decent paying jobs?
1: Uh, it's a fair question. And um, so InViva operates, you know, as, as you mentioned, four plants uh, here in North Carolina. I've been to all of them. I've been to see all of them. Um, the plants are enormous and they, um, you know, they cost upwards of $100 million to build. Um, there are some economic incentives that they get. They get a handful of tax breaks, but not a lot. So when EnviVA goes into a community, and I need to emphasize this, they are in the absolute poorest counties in North Carolina. These are largely counties of color uh, with higher than the state average unemployment rates. So they come into a community and they are welcomed um, because there aren't a lot of jobs there. And they are providing jobs but they're not a lot of jobs. Like, I mean, let's not get carried away. These plants employ fewer than 100 people. And most of those people are working for wages a little bit better than they would get if they were working in fast food. So maybe $15 an hour. These are not great jobs, but if there are no jobs, they're better than nothing. There are benefits, uh, but they're also dangerous jobs. And, and they they aren't exactly the healthiest jobs given Um, the toxicity that exists on these plant sites, the pollution that's generated on these plant sites, the dust that is generated on these plant sites. So these aren't the easiest jobs. And as I look at InViva's website, the turnover at this company, particularly at the operational level, at the plant level, is very, very high. They are constantly cycling through people. So they're constantly losing people and then hiring people. So yeah, their jobs, uh, they're paying a lot of taxes to these poor counties that they're in. Um, but, you know, there are lots of trade-offs as well.
0: What about environmental impacts f- for the immediate community? Is there any effect on the community just from the wood processing plants or the logging? I mean, you mentioned in the first segment that now some of these areas will be more flood-prone because there's there's no longer a forest to handle excess water in the event of a of a big storm or a flood. But what are some of the other effects?
1: Pine has a lot of toxicity within it, just just as it grows, you know, uh, in, in the same way that a tobacco plant has nicotine in it and, and other harmful chemicals that are just organic to the plant itself. Pine trees are the same way. So through the drying process, the emissions that come off of these trees is highly toxic. So it produces... Uh, what are called VOCs or volatile organic compounds. It also produces particulate matter, which is just sort of like little pieces of wood dust in the air. There are constantly complaints, and I've talked to people that live near the Inviva plants that complain all the time about their own health being affected by the fact that these plants are running 24-7 and that they are they are fouling the air, they're fouling the water around, you know, whatever runoff comes off those plants. There are frequently fires that take place uh, at these plants that I've heard about that gets reported by the local media, but doesn't really, you know, raise to the level of of being an enormous problem. Um, But there are environmental hazards that are a result of making these wood products from wood and not putting anything else into them.
0: A recent story that you published fills in some gaps that even you say the Wall Street Journal didn't explore when talking about the fact that Enviva was pretty near financial collapse. Talk about how you started to figure some of this out, and and what did you see as the gaps between what NVIVA company officials were telling the public about the reasons behind their losses and what other news organizations were reporting and why you thought, hmm, that doesn't make sense. It can't be the whole story.
1: Enviva is a public company. It is it is traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, its call letters are ENV. It has been a public company since 2015. As a result of being a public company, it is required to file public statements with the Security and Exchange Commissions every quarter. And for the longest period of time, those reports have been very positive. It's been about a company on a pretty rapid upswing from a point of view of revenue from a point of view of profit from a point of view of of its own growth uh, of its infrastructure and of its contracts overseas it became a billion dollar company 2 years ago so in 2021 Inviva for the first time had revenues in excess of a billion dollars making it the largest and perhaps the most profitable pellet maker uh, in the world, and there are again lots of pellet makers, and they're in they're in Scandinavia, they're in Eastern Europe, they're in Western Canada, but but really the 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 basket for wood pellets primarily is in the U.S. Southeast, and in Viva has the biggest basket. They started running into problems a year ago. Uh, they started having losses for the first time, not just small losses like tens of millions of dollars that they started reporting, and. You know, you have to explain why, but you don't have to really give lots of details as to why. So they can say we've had problems with, um, uh, you know, at some of our plants. They don't say what those problems are. They have to say that wood prices have gone up or wood prices have gone down or they're negotiating contracts or, they're, you know, there's there are these kind of oblique admissions of problems that unless um, – that even the analysts, the Wall Street analysts that are following the company – can't really say this is what's happening you really need somebody inside the company to say oh this is what's happening inside the company and journalists don't have sources like that because nobody within the wood pellet industry has ever come forward to say this is what's happening inside a company like viva this is the real problems that they have and it just so happens that somebody came to me in april of last year and said i'm tired of the lies that viva tells. And I want to talk.
0: And I remember in your piece, you talked about how your whistleblower started to really doubt what he was doing because he initially thought he was going to work for an environmentally friendly company. Yeah. And yeah. he was proud that his daughter had a daddy who was exactly. doing something good in the world. Yeah. And then he started to learn otherwise. Yeah. yeah. So how did, you, how did you meet him and connect with him? He
1: was incensed at a CBS report where they came to North Carolina to do a story on InviVA. And again, it was one of these 50/50 stories where it was completely balanced because the reporter, even though we had really strong stuff from the Dogwood Alliance and other people saying, you know these are the problems with wood pellets, the person that Inviva put forward to speak on behalf of the company was a, did a really good job of undermining all of that criticism. And again, you know, it's a six-minute story. It's only going to go so far. And he watched it. He said he watched that three or four times, and he was so angry that he said, I have to speak out. And so he goes online, and he whatever kind of Google search he does, Manga Bay and my name comes up more often than anybody else covering this issue. Like he could have gone to the New York Times, but the New York Times doesn't write about it very often. Neither does the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or CNN. They've all done one or two stories in the last five years. I've done over 30 stories. So he's like, well, I should talk to the guy that writes about it the most. And so he came to me and we started talking from there.
0: What did he tell you about what was happening on the inside and what was contributing to the company's financial collapse?
1: Well, I was really fortunate that this particular source was an operations manager. And so he was willing to tell me what his title was, and he was willing to tell me that the job that he had. So on the org chart at two plants uh, in North Carolina and one in Virginia, he was the number two person. He was the guy keeping the plants going so they could produce so many tons of wood pellets a day. A couple of weeks ago, when Enviva announced its third quarter results, and they were as horrible as they were, and its stock went to below a dollar a share when it was trading at $87 a share a year and a half ago, he explained to me that one of the reasons is that bought built plants that were not prepared to produce, to run as much pine as they were running. They were built with carbon steel instead of uh, stainless steel. And the difference between those two materials is, is incredible when you're running pine because pine is really, really corrosive to carbon steel in ways that it doesn't corrode stainless steel.
0: And you said they were running almost 80% pine? Absolutely. So and mostly reason, pine.
1: Mostly pine. And that's because pine, or, pine was cheaper for them to buy than hardwood. These plants were built with the op, with the thinking that they would be running 80% hardwood, 20% pine. That became too costly. So when they shifted, it literally was corroding the very mechanisms that they needed to produce their wood pellets. And this was one of the primary reasons why they have not been able to make enough wood pellets. They've had to buy pellets from from their competitors, and and it's cost them tens of millions of dollars in maintenance to keep these plants patched up and going at the levels that they're going. This is not something they're going to be able to fix very quickly, and it's not going to be something they're going to be able to fix very inexpensively.
0: Well, if their costs are going up for these reasons, why don't they just renegotiate their contracts with the buyers?
1: Because the buyers have a contract and they're not going to be willing to pay more. Now, maybe they are if we'll, if, if, Enviva says, well, then we're just going to go away we're, and you're not going to get your contract at all. Or they could just turn around and say, I'm sorry, like this is what we promised. And if you can't deliver at that price, then there could be a lawsuit. There are lots of variables here and there are competitors that might be able to fill the gaps, although it's a big gap that would be filled if if Enviva went out of business.
0: You also said that Enviva is facing two class action lawsuits now? They are. What are those about?
1: These are largely shareholder lawsuits. Again, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, these are people that thought they were investing in an environmentally friendly company and that they would make money as a result. The stock has gone from $87 a share in April of 2022 to $1.20 today. There are people that have lost millions and millions of dollars investing in what they thought was a quality, environmentally friendly company. The story that I just wrote with the help of this insider suggests also like uh, operational sort of malfeasance to, to a certain degree. Their plants aren't operating at the degree that they need to that the investors expect them to operate at. And so I would think that that the that the elements of my story that published not too long ago will make their way into these class action lawsuits as well.
0: Now, how did you verify that this person was a legitimate source?
1: Well, you know, this is a, a tricky thing. and you know, I've been a journalist a long time, Rachel. It's not the first whistleblower that I've had. Um, it, it, there, there aren't that many that you get in a long career right. as a journalist. Um, he's actually my second one. The first one agreed to be uh, on the record and, and, and was very public. And it involved the tobacco industry. Uh, and, uh, but with this particular guy... Um, I had to be really careful with him. And Viva has been aware of my reporting since I started writing about them in 2018, and they have never cooperated with me. In fact, they've done the opposite. I, 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 I was involved in a series of stories for the Raleigh News and Observer in early 2020, and Inviva actively tried to get me off that story. How? They uh, they went to the editor of the Raleigh News and Observer. I was not a staff writer. I was a freelancer. And they said, you can't trust this guy. Uh, you shouldn't be using a freelancer. We will work with your staff writers, um, but you should not be working with Catanoso. Rachel, here's the issue here. Inviva likes to talk to journalists that are writing this story for the first time. Mm-hmm. When I wrote my first wood pellet story, I was so confused. I couldn't believe this was actually a thing. And it took me months to get my head around it. And there was really years to get my head all the way around all the ins and outs, the policy complexity, the scientific complexity, the fact that Enviva tells the truth a little bit. um, And so you have to take that seriously. But in the bigger picture, they're very misleading. It takes a while to learn all that. And a reporter interviewing them for the first time thinks, oh, my God, like, this is a kind of an amazing thing. We're cutting down trees. The trees regrow. We burn them instead of coal. We're reducing fossil fuel burning. It sounds great.
0: So why is it when you first heard about this you had a hard time getting your head around it?
1: Because I couldn't believe we were chopping down trees and burning them for energy. And I couldn't believe that that companies, countries that were doing that – did not were not required by their own policy to count those emissions. When we are essentially in this climate crisis because of emissions, because of carbon dioxide emissions, whether they're coming from fossil fuels or whether they're coming from burning forests or burning wood pellets, nature doesn't draw a distinction between where the carbon dioxide comes from. It just makes the greenhouse effect worse and we warm faster.
0: But the designation of wood pellets as sustainable, as a sustainable, renewable form of energy, a progressive, environmentally friendly energy source, that's old, right? I mean, that goes back to the late 90s.
1: It does, yeah. This this all. This, this, this industry did not exist before, really, by 2005. And it really stemmed in large part from a provision in the Kyoto Protocol, of 1997, which classified renewable energy um, entities, so clearly wind is is uh, a renewable energy entity that is carbon zero. Uh, so is solar. Uh, so are aspects of hydro and and obviously nuclear. But in an, in in what I don't believe was either nefarious or even erroneous in their minds, they included wood. They included trees as a renewable energy source, and the thinking was very basic. It was, if you have a tree that's a carbon sink and you cut it down and you burn it, if you plant a tree to replace it, that new tree will absorb the carbon that has been released by the tree that was cut and burned. And that is actually true. It just isn't true in the timeframes that we need in this particular climate crisis. There's great research out there, particularly by scientists at MIT, that has demonstrated that the payback period for that tree to absorb the carbon from the one that was cut and burned is anywhere from 44 to 110 years. And we just don't have that kind of time if we are going to slow the rate of global warming and keep this planet inhabitable in the generations ahead.
0: What do we know about emissions from burning wood pellets? Are wood pellets cleaner burning than coal?
1: Well, Inviva would have you believe that. And and in fact, all pellet makers would have you believe that, that um, because they are burning something natural like trees, that this is better than the coal that gets unearthed and burned in these big power plants. There have been studies done on this as well. Many studies done on this. And it's really not that hard to understand. Wood, produ- wood contains less energy per ton than a ton of coal. Less BTUs, if you want to use the... Um, you know, sort of the the electricity jargon. So, and this is the thing that really blew my mind when I figured this out or learned about it through my research, you have to burn more wood to produce the same amount of energy as when you burn coal. And in all actuality, you are polluting more burning wood than you are when you're burning coal. According to the science that I've read, with reputable scientists that I trust, Wood pellet burning is contributing more to the climate crisis than burning coal is. I have a really good source who's a professor emeritus at Tufts who um, is involved with the IPCC, which is the the research arm of the United Nations. He's written reports on this, and he has told me, point blank, Justin, we would be better off continuing to burn coal and leave these trees standing as a carbon sink. In the long run and the short run, we would be better off not burning trees, continuing to burn coal while we phase them out for true renewables like wind and solar and nuclear. Once industry gets to a certain size, then it starts to call the shots. And this is now a multi-billion dollar global enterprise uh, cutting down trees, pressing them into wood pellets, and selling them uh, and being subsidized by governments and selling them at great volume. Now you suddenly have an, have an industry that is being threatened by policy change. And they are fighting like hell to keep that from happening.
0: You're listening to Coastline. After this short break, environmental reporter Justin Catanoso will address environmental advocacy versus journalism and why he believes the question is even a red herring. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn, and Viva opened its wood pellet facility at the Wilmington, North Carolina port in 2016. The company has four manufacturing plants in North Carolina and one in Virginia, and despite record high demand for wood pellets, government subsidies from overseas, and a massive half-billion-dollar-plus line of credit, and Viva is on the verge of collapse. Justin Catanoso has reported on the wood pellet industry and specifically in Viva for the environmental publication, Manga Bay. With the help of an anonymous source, a whistleblower, he uncovered some of the reasons behind the company's financial troubles. How he navigates teaching journalism at Wake Forest University and working for an organization that is a self-described nonprofit conservation news platform is part of our exploration today. But before we get to that, Justin, one of the examples that you've used in your story that raises questions about several of Enviva's basic environmental claims include a site in Edenton It was going to be cleared for industrial use anyway. So local leaders decided to sell the trees yes. to Enviva. So is that is that worse? Than having as a part of the issue here is Enviva says they only buy from sites that are going to be replanted but if this wasn't going to be replanted anyway is that worse than having developers push the debris from the deforestation process into piles and burn it right there on the site as they currently do in Brunswick County
1: So in, in that particular site it was 52 acres it was um, you know on the sound side at Edenton it was owned by the municipality and uh, about half of the wood there went to a timber mill, and the other half went to Enviva's smallest plant, which is in Ahoskie, and it was about 35 miles away. So whether it's bad or whether it's worse, like that, that site was going to get cleared. Uh, this, the, uh, the, the town of Edenton wants to put an industrial site there. It's right near its airport. Um, and, and so what I'm not quite clear on is if Enviva wasn't taking half of that wood, would it have been financially viable for the loggers to take down any of it if if they knew that only half of it could be sold and if inviva wasn't there to buy that other half the rest of it would just be lying on the ground it would be there to rot or as you say it would be stacked up into these slash piles and it would have been burned there on the spot so it's a little it's a little difficult to say but inviva is emphatic they tell its employees and they also have on their website that they only take trees from sites that will be replanted. The fact of the matter is, Inviva has absolutely no input into whether a site gets replanted or not. These are private sites that they're getting land from. They don't go back and say, hey, have you replanted this site? They don't provide any resources for that site to be replanted. This is what's called greenwashing, quite frankly. And Enviva has a lot of people investing in them because they think they're investing in a company that has what are called ESG credentials or environmental credentials that they can feel good about. They claim this, and it's not true.
0: Are there forms of biomass that are not controversial?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, half of, not half, a, a big percentage of the corn that's grown in the Midwest is being grown for for ethanol. And that's bio. That's a biofuel. Uh, and you know we can grow corn pretty quickly. Those you know those um, fields and fields and fields have been cut forever. They're you know they're there for farming. Um, so so there's plenty of forms of biomass. Switchgrass is something that is grown uh, um, for for bioenergy. Soy is grown for for bioenergy. And if it's being grown on fields that are already existing, if you're not deforesting a place to grow those things, it's must much. much less controversial on the land side. But I really need to emphasize this. If if the end product is burning, if the end product is emissions of some kind, we aren't helping the climate crisis. We are not going to burn ourselves out of this climate crisis that we're in. The only answer is reducing carbon emissions across the board as quickly as we can.
0: Now you sound, what you're saying is based in Uh, The most recent climate science, so I am not arguing with that last statement, but you do sound like an environmental advocate. As someone who teaches journalism and who started the, uh, was it the Triad Business Journal 15 years ago? Yeah. So you come from uh, hard news reporting. How do you walk that line? Is there a line? How do you think about that? And what do you tell your students about that?
1: You know, I'm a really, you know, I got into journalism uh, as, a, as a, a very young person, really. I was a teenager. And, and it's because I'm passionate about writing and I'm passionate about the things that I write about. I care about the things that I write about. It doesn't necessarily make me an advocate. I, I think the charge against people that cover uh, environmental issues and they cover them aggressively and, uh, and those stories on balance turn out to be more in favor of the environment than on the people that are deforesting or the people that are de- polluting, I think it's a red herring. I-, I-, I think it's a distraction. You know, there is right and wrong in reporting, and this is what I teach my, my students. When you do complicated, uh, controversial stories, there are two sides, and you have to give voice to both sides. But if you've done your reporting and you feel like you understand the facts and have come to some semblance of the truth, then your story is not going to come out 50-50. It's not going to balance out on a scale. And if it does, then you probably haven't done enough reporting or the story isn't controversial at all. Now, Inviva will accuse me of being an advocate. It's convenient for them to do. The fact of the matter is, is I I know a lot about this topic and I can't be dissuaded by the things that'll throw other reporters off that are coming to it new. So in, I'll give you an example. And Viva says, you know, we are cutting down trees, sure. We're doing some of that. We're, we're taking trees from from some lots. But the fact of the matter is, the trees are actually growing faster. The canopy is expanding faster as a whole then we are taking down trees in our particular spots now that makes sense like that is a sensible comment the fact is when you look at the research it's not true forests are expanding in places where we are not taking them down but deforestation is far outpacing our ability to protect forests and last year the southern environmental law center finally did a study that compared in vivas catchment areas, in vivas areas where they are cutting down wood for their plants and compared it to what that canopy looked like before that plant was in place. And this was a preeminent researcher from Clark University, he's a geographer up in Massachusetts. He did a really, really good study that I was able to look at and look at the methodology and see for myself and run it by other scientists that this was credible research. And what he determined is that there was a 6% loss of tree cover after NViva came in. It doesn't sound like a lot, but 6% a year, year after year, adds up to thousands and thousands of acres of deforestation that NViva is directly contributing to.
0: What is an advocate? How would you define that?
1: Well, an advocate are are, are the people that are my sources, you know? I mean, this is people at the Dogwood Alliance. It's, It's people at... You know the World Wildlife Fund or NRDC. These are people that um, that are pursuing one side of the story. They uh, they are first and foremost for the environment, and they are trying to uh, raise awareness and 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 get people on board with them to lobby legislators or lobby local officials to put a halt to uh, you know environmental. Uh, entities that are doing damage to the environment. My job really is to report the story. Uh, it's to let people know what they're doing, set it in the context of the science, and also give Inviva the opportunity to have its say. When Inviva does return my calls, when Inviva does answer my questions, they are included as accurately and fully in my reporting um, as as anyone else that I have in the say. They they just don't get 50-50 because I look at this as a journalist and I get to determine what I think is correct.
0: Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and there have been times from the other side, you've said, when environmental advocates have wanted you to write a certain kind of story. Can you Can you give us an example of being in that situation? What kind of pressure was put on you? And Why you couldn't or wouldn't write the kind of story they wanted you to write?
1: All of good journalism is about verification. Uh, My students are not allowed to write a one-source story. If they do, they will fail that assignment. The essence of legitimate, trustworthy journalism is the process of verifying your sources and verifying your facts. So I have had people that I admire and people that I respect, people that I've quoted in previous stories, give me story ideas, give me tips that they wanted me to go after some particular entity. And they were putting out press releases about it. And I looked at it and I said, well, this seems plausible. I'll look into it. But I couldn't verify those facts. I couldn't verify them independently on my own, and I didn't have the sources that were supporting that side of the story. And as a result, I wouldn't do the story. I just wouldn't do it. I couldn't verify the assertions that people I trusted were putting out there. And so that's an example of an independent journalist. As an independent journalist, I am writing for you, the reader, or you, the listener. Um, I'm not writing for my sources. There are times where my sources are pissed off at me. They don't. They don't like, you know, what I've written. They think that I've given too much say to the other side, or that the story was too balanced. It's gonna happen sometimes with stories. Right. That's the risk that I take.
0: Right. Now you you started the Triad Business Journal. You said, and you were its editor for 15 years. How did you move from business reporting to environmental reporting? And how did you find Manga Bay?
1: So, uh, j- just very quickly, you know, I- I've been a local journalist most of my life. Uh, running a business journal is hyper local. Like we really only covered like Guilford County, Forsyth County, like the economy of local, uh, of those two counties. Um, in-, in 2011, um, I was offered the opportunity. I, I had taught part-time at Wake Forest for 17 years. And I was offered to come on full-time as a full-time professor. And I took that opportunity. And I was eager to leave local reporting behind. Uh, I have a colleague at at Wake Forest. um, He's a tropical ecologist by the name of Miles Silman. He happens to be one of the best in the world at what he does. His study field is the Peruvian Amazon. And in 2013, he invited me to go with him to the Amazon because he really did say, like, I know you've walked away from local news. You need a new story. Come with me to the Amazon, and I'm going to introduce you to the finest tropical ecologists on Earth, and you can see whether you want to become an environmental journalist covering climate change. I was there 17 days, and I was hooked. And it took me another you know I learned about Bay about a year later. And then it took me another year to just get my foot in the door at Mongabay, and I've been a contributing uh, correspondent for them, really reporting for them around the world uh, since 2015.
0: Now, the Rachel Carson Council recently wrote about high rates of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation on college campuses, burnout. The National College Health Assessment reports 80% of college students say they're overwhelmed. 40% say it's difficult to function, especially among climate activists. And I know we're, you're a journalist, not an mm-hmm. activist, but you're, you're immersed in the world. Burnout is so common. So they're, they're calling these things now climate anxiety, climate grief. And other mental illnesses associated with climate change that people are are dealing with in the in this climate space. Are you have you grappled with that yourself and how do you deal with potential burnout?
1: It's such an interesting question because it's it's a question that I ask scientists and, and I don't really ask it of myself. Mm. Um, I know the score you know like I, I really do and 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 not only because i cover this but because my closest friends on this campus are are tropical ecologists are scientists that are working right in the middle of this you know miles being one of them i'm really careful in what i share with my students because a, a lot of them have very very minimal knowledge of climate change and the impact that it's going to have like in their in their future even though it's having an
0: impact right now. Wait, what? I'm sorry. Can you just say that again? Your current students have very little knowledge?
1: It's shocking to me. What Wake Forest students, some of the finest students in the country, come to my classes and what they know about climate science is limited. They hear it first in a journalism class before they hear it in a biology class. Some of them aren't taking biology classes. So I tell them and they're shocked. And and I really have to hold back on how grim things really are. Because I just want to kind of get them engaged. But, but here's the thing that I want to say, Rachel, and, and this is, it, it's, it, it's probably true for you as it is for me. There's an enthusiasm uh, that comes with being a journalist. There's an excitement that comes with being close to the people that are making the decisions, that are making things happen. This is exciting work that we get to do as journalists. It's an incredible privilege. I've never seen it as anything other than that. And even when I'm writing about things that are desperate and dire uh, and where there isn't some kind of Pollyannish upside at the end of the story, I still feel invigorated by the conversation, by the passion of the people that are telling these stories, and I get to tell their stories. And maybe it's the policymakers that see that story. Maybe they're the ones that are starting to say, you know, maybe we should stop ignoring this now. Maybe we need to start moving. Maybe we need to start protecting more land. Maybe we need to think about bioenergy in a different way. And don't lose hope. You can't afford to lose hope. We're, 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 we're still in this. The window hasn't shut. It's not a fun story to tell. I can bum people out pretty quickly. My kids are pretty much tired of hearing about wood pellets. Um, But
0: uh, I'm not going away. This is not a story I'm letting go of. And that is this edition of Coastline. Justin Catanoso, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Rachel, thank you so much for having me on asking such great questions.
0: And thanks also to WFDD for making this possible. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.